Producing accurate and up-to-date information on illegal markets is not an easy task. At any moment, new methods of smuggling, transporting, manufacturing and selling illicit goods are being developed. How do GI analysts research drugs? And what happens when, despite the best efforts, prosecution of illicit actors fails? You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Crystal meth is available for purchase in every country of Eastern and Southern Africa. Its production volume is breaking records, while its unit production price and cost are decreasing. These factors are paving the way for increasing meth usage across the region. New research from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime examines the growing illicit meth market. But researching illicit activities is challenging in any context. How then do the GI's analysts gather information on activities designed to evade detection? So when we're looking at drug markets, I think one of the first things we have to acknowledge is that there is a limitation to to what we know and, and what we think we know. Jason Eli is a senior expert at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Think of standing in front of a large aquarium, standing on one side of it and being asked to describe what you see. I mean, you would describe, for example, that that it's, it's this structure in front of me, but you wouldn't necessarily know, looking at that one side, how large it is. And more importantly, you wouldn't really know what was inside. You, you could infer, well, it's an aquarium, so there must be fish, but you wouldn't really know for sure what, what constitutes that particular aquarium. And it's the same way when we look at drug markets, we stand outside of them, most of us anyway, stand outside of them and we look at them as this external feature to us. And we are looking at it from a single perspective. What are the effects of misguided understandings about drug markets and drug users? The way that the, the drug war, as it were, has been oriented and proselytized and organized uh, globally has been done through the words and the actions of a minority of the population that are related to the foreign affairs of particular countries, right? It, it emanates from Vienna, from, from the UN, from the institutions that are responsible for the international conventions who together with the member states lay down what they think ought to be done about the uh, global strategy to respond to drugs. And the evidence that they use are, in most cases, are numbers, statistics that are provided by the countries themselves. And a lot of this evidence is related either to the documentation of particular seizures, the number of arrests, or some other number that a country comes up with that is not necessarily based in a scientific approach to, to evidence or not necessarily based in a strong methodological framework when it comes to actually acquiring data. So what we're saying here is, is there's a limited set of numbers from which a number of relationships are assumed and a strategy is, is designed in response. The voice of people who use drugs has been silenced 
almost exclusively throughout the generation of of this program and its and its orientation in countries around the world. There have been instances where people have been asked to represent uh, communities where people who use drugs and and there has been a growing campaign in Vienna in particular for a greater voice of civil society and and I think that's something we need to applaud. But when it comes to actually seeing this occur at the national level, so many countries, particularly on the continent, are lacking in their ability, well, in their desire to accommodate and incorporate the voices of people who use drugs when it comes to talking about what is really happening in drug markets. What methodology was used to gain a more holistic view of the meth market in the GI's most recent meth report? The presence of something doesn't necessarily equate to the presence of it in a market. And the absence of something doesn't necessarily equate to its absence in a market. So the importance of of our research was first in recognizing this, and then secondly, in trying to climb inside the aquarium, as it were, to try and get inside the domestic market and find out what this could tell us about what is going on around us. Challenges around this, of course, are how do we do that? Somebody like myself, who is is foreign to a particular market and not a not a user and not familiar with the the structural features of of a particular market in terms of being a participant within it, would be a poor a poor investigator in that sense because the information I would gather by going around and trying to understand what drugs are available in would be biased in their orientation, but also would be dangerous for this to occur because I'm an outsider trying to get inside what is an illegal market and and a market that does have violence associated with it in, in terms of trying to protect the interests of those involved in the market. So the approach that we've taken at the GI is to work with directly with people who have this inside knowledge and have the ability to explore the markets and, and provide information about them, and and that's people who use drugs. Can you explain the nature of the relationship with people who use drugs or PWUDs as field researchers? Our relationship was one of a partnership, and we had had an agreement with them. We sat down and, and had discussions with the membership in several countries of these groups, and several of these these groups have been formally created and registered in, in their countries of origin. So you can think Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa in particular. But there are several other groups that are informal in their orientation. And you can think here of Malawi, of Zambia, of, of Zimbabwe even. And these are groups that, that exist in the sense that they have a collegial quality among a, a subset of them. But for a number of reasons, many of them political, they're unable or unwilling to get registered for reasons of, of safety, primarily, because as we know, drug use remains a heavily stigmatized and in several of the countries uh, involved in our research, uh, very dangerous behavior to have associated with oneself. People who use drugs are disappearing, are being killed, are being arbitrarily arrested, or are being imprisoned at very high rates all in the name of law enforcement trying to appear to be making a difference when it comes to tackling the drug markets of their particular countries. 
And we know from research that has been conducted on such activities around the world, these types of campaigns do nothing to address the overall drug market in a particular place. Markets continue to prosper, drugs continue to flow, and harm continues to happen. Jason, what does this methodology look like in practice? So we could take South Africa as an example. And we had these meetings where we outlined what would be a methodology that, that we, would, we thought would be appropriate. And then we discussed both the appropriateness of the methodology and also the feasibility of actually enacting it. And then suggestions from users, guidance from users in terms of, of the actual implementation. And this came down to geographies, came down to populations, came down to different phenomena to look at. It was really a fascinating exercise in and of itself. And I think an important learning experience for us when it came to really understanding some of the core structural components of, of drug markets. I'm talking here beyond just people who use, but we're talking about the various levels of distribution and dealing we're talking about how drugs are incorporated into the market from point of importation down through the spider web of, of networks when it comes to getting the drugs actually to the point of somebody being able to consume them. And it's really a, a fascinating examination. So the, the research was developed together with these, these groups of people who use drugs, and then it was implemented together where they were, in many cases, the principal researchers uh, working with one or two of our people who, who acted more as resources than as actual on-the-ground researchers. And that's how these, these data were collected. What unique data sets were you able to collect by working directly with people who use drugs? I mean, we, we collected something that maybe you would assume is rather simple to get, but in fact is... It's really quite complex, and that's the retail price of a particular substance. So the question, how much does heroin cost, doesn't have a very simple answer when we talk about a, a particular market because the price of heroin in a market is dependent on so many things, whether it's a purity, whether it's how much money somebody has available to spend, whether it's the volume of the packet, whether it's the geographic location where it's bought, whether it's the individual who's doing the buying, all sorts of features like that have an impact on how much heroin is costed in the marketplace. So we, we have in our research come up with what we feel is a general mean for the price of substances in the country. And in our most recent research, this is methamphetamine. In the report itself, you will see that we break down the cost by uh, province in South Africa in particular, and also by range. So we talk about a ceiling price and a floor price. It is very important when we look at it to include these elements. Some of the other things we looked at were how distribution networks were organized, how drugs move through the various levels of, of dealing, how this is reflected in the market on the street, as it were. We looked at flows between communities. We looked at ways in which drugs were used. We look at frequency of use. We also, through this research, did a size estimate of how many people used a particular substance in a particular country. So these are all elements that are not in and of themselves 
able to explain a market in a whole, but together present a far better picture of what is going on in a market than do figures like arrests and seizures alone. Why were PWUDs interested in participating in the study? I think that's an excellent question. And uh, the, the first thing I will say is people who use drugs have always been excluded from all types of research endeavors. So one of the things we heard regularly when we were doing this from our partners was that first, they'd never been involved in something like this before, which I didn't find surprising. But secondly, in efforts that they've been associated with in the past, they never learned the results. So nobody ever came back and told them what they found out. Now, no doubt these results were published in an academic paper somewhere or in a report or something like that. But nobody ever came back and said, hey, this is what we found out. Would you like to know this information? Right? This is not a population that has access to academic journals. There's so much value and, and ability and desire in a large part of the community of people who use drugs to, to try and find solutions to some of the challenges that they have. Now, we paid for the research in the sense that, that nobody was put out in terms of costs being involved in the research. So we had, a, we had a, a proper contract with the organization and all of the expenses related to the research from both sides were, were covered in this. But what was in it for them? Well, there was the fact of inclusion in the debate. There was some level of pride, I think, of being able to contribute to a piece of research that was then presented to them before it was finalized to verify the results of the findings. And that's another important feature. Not only was were the data collected and the data analyzed, then the data were run through focus groups with not only our partner, but others in the population to say, does this make sense to you? What do you think of this? And the verification of the data in that sense was a very important process, both in terms of presenting our findings to the community as a whole, but also in verifying our findings with the people who, quite frankly, matter most in this sense. So that when they're presented in our report, these are findings that aren't just the results of, of an individual or individuals from, from outside, you know, an outsider's perspective gazing in at this African market, but rather these are the results from African people who use drugs, talking about their communities, talking about the structures of their markets, and talking about what is really happening there. And how do you think this research might contribute to the international response to drug markets? Well, I think uh, three things. I think first, uh, the research, we hope, will contribute to a better understanding that what we think we know about markets, we don't really know. We overestimate what we think we know uh, is going on in markets. And the second thing that I think is very important is the value that can be provided by involving people who use drugs in research around drug markets themselves. And there was enormous, enormous value in the case of the research that, that we undertook. And the third, I think, is the recognition that drug markets are not static, but they are ever-evolving, ever-expanding, ever-adapting, and ever-changing organisms in these places. And the reach of drug markets is far wider 
and far deeper than I think anyone outside of a particular market can really, really understand. And I think if, if those three things come out of this particular research, then I think that would be the beginning of, of the success in trying to change the global debate around drugs and drug markets. That was Jason Eli, a senior expert at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Africa's got 700 tons of ivory. It's being moved across continents, being sold under the table. It's fueling international crime. Traders in ivory actually want extinction of elephants. The less elephants there are, the more the price rises. And it's a race against time. What you've just heard was a clip from the 2016 Netflix documentary, The Ivory Game. The documentary shoved one of the world's biggest ivory traffickers, Boniface Matthew Maliango, into the international spotlight. Nicknamed Shetani Hanahoruma, the devil has no mercy in Kiswahili, the traffickers' 2017 arrest was celebrated as a victory by conservation organizations. But his conviction was quietly overturned in mid-2020. Similarly, another trafficker, Mateso Chupi Kasian, was extradited from Mozambique to Tanzania in 2017 to face prosecution for his own involvement in ivory trafficking. However, his prosecution only led to a $215 fine, a small price to pay when compared to the alleged financial gains made from his illicit activities. What went wrong? How did two notorious traffickers manage to outrun the long arm of the law? To unpack this case, Alistair Nelson, senior fellow at the GI, takes us back to the beginning. Mateso was the most important ivory trafficker in northern Mozambique for a number of years, so say from about 2011 until his arrest in 2017. He was Tanzanian and, and by reputation had been a, a major ivory trafficker in southern Tanzania from prior to that, 2007 to 11. And so he moved tons of ivory from the sites where the elephants were killed. So he ran poaching gangs as well. And those gangs that he ran were, were really well organized. They had newish hunting weapons likely stolen from hunting camps. They had good ammunition. They would have first aid kits. They had weapons cleaning gear. There were a couple of people in those gangs. After one of the arrests of one of his gangs, we, we, we found a notebook from the guy that he had with them who was actually monitoring what they were shooting. So he actually had people checking up and making sure that the weights they were recording to him were correct. They weren't skimming ivory off the top. He was exceptionally well organized. So he had the gangs and he sold to the traffickers, to the people who were moving it from the east coast of Africa to Asia. So he sold to Chinese and Vietnamese networks in the ports of, of Mozambique, so in Pemba and possibly in Nikala. We definitely know about Pemba, we presume in Nikala. Shatani, as, we, as I understand it, played a similar role in, in Tanzania. Alistair, what role did civil society organizations play in building a case against Shatani and Mateso? My role there and, and the civil society role, so on the Mozambique side, and, and there was a similar organization supporting on the Tanzanian side, was very much in support of government. I mean, I think it's, it must be very, very clear that government has the mandate, government has the authority. And when it comes to anything to do with law enforcement, government needs to be leading on that. And, and I think this, I get slightly concerned when there's a trend of civil society leading on that. 
So the role that I played and the role that others played, it wasn't only the organization I worked for then, the Wildlife Conservation Society. There were other civil society organizations in northern Mozambique and, and as I mentioned, in Tanzania. We all worked very, very closely with government and it was and we'll touch on this later. And it was it was because there were some trusted partners in government that we were able to to work with very, very closely, that certainly with the Matesso case, that investigation was able to be built over a number of years because he was incredibly good at what he did. There wasn't even a photograph of him, despite numerous state organizations trying to have surveillance on him. We had no idea what he looked like, where he was. It was very, very hard to actually find him to effect the arrest. So the role that, that we played really was as civil society organizations was to support government. So we raised money from private donors, foundations who were prepared to give us fast, flexible funding to be able to tackle the ivory traffickers in that area. And we would then make that available to the government law enforcement authorities. And we would there was other things that we provided as well to help them be able to move quickly and fast. And we only supported small trusted units as well. And so they were all, you know, government for the, the reasons that they have the mandate was always in the lead and we played a supporting role behind it. Also trying not to not to be too involved in the intelligence and the level that those levels of information as well. Because really again, the security related information is is government government information, it's government security information. What was your first reaction then after all that work over many years when you learnt that Mateso Chupi Kassian's conviction had been reduced to this minimal fine? Um, frustration, a huge frustration, and then and then obviously wanting to actually find out what was going on because you hear things and you read things and you need to verify. <laughs> you as a as a great journalist know this more than more than anyone really. So it was to actually just as soon as I tempered my frustration was to find out what had happened, and you know I think think there's a couple of things going on. So certainly in the case of of Mateso, my understanding is that there is another case against him, but I haven't actually seen that. And then I understand that um, Tanzania will appeal even in, in a higher court that uh, overturning of of his um, his fine and and the removal of assets, etc. So I understand that there is going to be a push to address that. But nonetheless, the frustration that every case wasn't able to stick is still there. Are you surprised that despite all of the international attention that Shatani's case received, it was still dropped? No, look, I'm not surprised. I think if you look across the legal wildlife trade and, and major cases across the region, East and Southern Africa, you'll often find that the higher level people, either the cases just don't follow through, they're just not prosecuted. They get to a stage of maybe an arrest and, and the beginning of a trial and nothing happens. And it's not an illegal wildlife trade. We saw it with the Akashas, for example, in, in Kenya. And then the evidence came out there when they were eventually moved to the US that there was some quite significant corruption involved in that, where they were able to keep the case stagnating. And I think that some of these higher level traffickers are able to to do that. I and mean, they're able to just draw these cases out forever and for a long time. I'm not suggesting that there was corruption in the Shatani and Matesso cases, but we've certainly seen it in other cases related to these higher level traffickers. So it's also the nature of the case. It's, they're not often not touching the ivory. So you have to build a more complicated case against them. And therein lie challenges, especially in East Africa and actually in the region as well, where police investigators are judged by how many cases they turn over. And when you have a lack of lack of resources, also a lack of skills. I don't want to say training because training doesn't often solve everything, but a lack of experience in tackling organized crime. 
So then, you, and a lack of resources, and you're judged by how quickly you turn things over. The cases against these organized criminals are often not well built. So the time to do, you know, to put a, a, a confidential informant alongside the guys and gather information, to do surveillance, to use electronic surveillance and gather all of the evidence, that time and the resources to do that effectively are often not there. And then to build complex cases that might involve financial crimes, they might involve conspiracy, as well as the wildlife crime. And so if you look at countries where they actually provide the resources to units to do that, like in China and like in the United States, you see big cases being built like that. And I think we're a little way off that in the region, just in terms of capacity. So there are a number of challenges and there's a number of reasons why I think this happened. For more on the difficulties in prosecuting these cases, we spoke to Shamini Janayathan, a senior prosecution advisor for the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. She explains how the case against Shatani was built and the evidence that was used to convict him. So the allegations against him and his two co-defendants were of leading organized crime and unlawful dealing of trophies um, between 2009 and 2015. 118 elephant tusks were said to be involved in this criminal racket. And uh, I think if you watch the ivory games, you'll have seen uh, Shatani in particular being described as the most notorious killer of elephants in Tanzania ever known. The film showed a clip actually of officers from a specialist unit going to a village and arresting someone who was employed by him to kill elephants. But they didn't find him at that time. And it was following a further tip-off that Shatani was arrested in October 2015. Information that he gave led to the arrest of, arrest of another two people, one of whom was later acquitted at trial. And essentially, the key evidence against him was, number one, his vehicle, um, which was found nearby to where he was arrested, in which whitish particles were found, later confirmed to be elephant tusk, and his own caution statement and oral confession, where he basically confessed to his own role in illegal activities of trafficking ivory, and his information led the police to the co-accused and other vehicles that were impounded and said to have been involved in helping him conduct his criminal activities. So that was essentially the evidence against him. Shamani, how is it that his conviction has been quashed now at the appeal court? The reason essentially is confession-based convictions are of concern and should be approached with great caution. Not a single task was found. There was no evidence of financial gain, no evidence of any communications between the accused persons, no evidence, for example, from the man that we saw arrested in that Netflix documentary. He didn't give evidence against Shatani. And there was no evidence linking either men to the 118 tasks or indeed to any other sort of criminal operation between the dates that were alleged or the venues that were alleged. So really what you were left with was a confession. And a vehicle that had, yes, it did have some ivory tusk material within it, but there was also a break in the chain of custody. And this is quite important. Six hours elapsed between the seizure of the vehicle and its later forensic examination. And in between, the police had searched the vehicle. So the risk of contamination couldn't be excluded and should always be resolved in favor of an accused person. Um, he's entitled to the benefit of the doubt. And when you're looking at a confession, the courts have to be concerned with, A, the voluntariness of this statement. And of course, if a conviction is going to be based almost entirely on a confession, as I said, they've got to approach it with great caution. And so when you took away the oral statement and you're left essentially with evidence where there's a question mark over contamination, potential contamination, and then all you've got left with is a confession, um, I think the Court of Appeal got it right in overturning that conviction. 
As you say, the Court of Appeal got it right, but it is a heavy blow for the conservation sector. Where do you think things went wrong in this particular instance? We couldn't find any evidence or no evidence was presented of him of leadership or directing a criminal activity. So in terms of looking at what went wrong in this case, I I don't think it's helpful to necessarily assign blame. The criminal justice system has so many moving parts. And the fact is, when this case first came to light and the arrest took place in 2015, the Independent Prosecution Service of Tanzania was only seven years old. Prior to that, police prosecutors handled most, if not all, cases in the magistrate's court. So what you had at that time was a very young prosecution service and early and engaged, continued engagement between investigator and prosecutor was not the norm. So from speaking to colleagues in that office, it would appear that the prosecutor in the Shatani case was not engaged for some time. The problem in a lot of these cases though, is there's a failure to think trial right from the start of a case, even before you've arrested a suspect. And I think a lot of the emphasis that I've seen over the last eight years when I've been working in this field, as, and I'm coming from the perspective of a criminal barrister, is that the emphasis has been on disruption, arrest, you know, intelligence-led operations, mentoring of specialist investigative task forces, but it leaves out this, this issue of looking towards the prosecution and the trial and the outcome. And so we're sort of front-loaded, or we have been front-loaded from a conservation criminal justice point of view on that initial sort of disruption and arrest. And of course, the criminal justice system is more complex, and without institutional change, we can't see the sort of outcomes that we want to see. At the end of the day, these cases will end up in the hands of the prosecutor. And if that prosecutor receives a file too late, there's very little that can be done in terms of trying to mop up and pick up strands of the investigation that have been neglected. And it's entering a court system where perhaps they've got a significant backlog of cases, you've got an adjournment culture. So the delay in resolving that case can be significant, during which time evidence can get lost, witnesses get fed up of coming to court, magistrates and and even prosecutors, they move on, they get transferred, you start the case again. These are the sort of endemic problems that we're seeing, not just in wildlife trafficking cases, but in all criminal cases that I've seen, particularly across this continent. Why is it so hard to secure successful prosecutions for wildlife trafficking? Part of the reason is the law concerning wildlife cases for many jurisdictions is quite obscure. Most prosecutors that I, I work with, that I observe in courts all over Africa, their daily diet is usually penal code offences, your robberies, your thefts, your shoplifting,s your drug offences and so on. Um, and so you, you have a law that is not easily accessible. I've seen prosecutors with smartphones having to look things up on that small screen, having to pour through entire statutes before court. So that's one aspect. But I think the biggest problem is that we're not really focusing on the institutional changes that need to occur in the criminal justice system to make these investigations and prosecutions successful. A lot of the interventions, particularly from the conservation sector, who've started to get involved in criminal justice work over the last eight years, at least, that I've been working in it, have been very front-loaded. It's been focused on frontline protection, law enforcement from the policing point of view, with little consideration given to prosecutions and trial beyond sensitizing prosecutors and judges. But of course, you can bring a group of individual prosecutors and judges into a room, train them on the law, make them care about these cases. But those people get transferred, they retire, they get promoted. And so unless we start building institutional memory and processes within prosecution services and judicial services, that sort of work isn't really sustainable. 
We need to move to a situation where we're less siloed in our approach. At the moment, you know, I'm focusing on wildlife trafficking, another NGO or IGO would maybe focused on human trafficking, someone else may be focused on sexual gender-based violence. But we're all entering the same bottleneck of the same courtroom with the same problems. So until we sort of shift towards a more holistic approach in criminal justice, so that these cases can move through more quickly, that they can be sentenced appropriately and predictably, we're going to see this sort of back and forth. So sometimes we get these successes and then maybe personnel change and we go back again by a few more steps before we have to build back up again. And so we need, we need a little bit more of a holistic approach, I think, because the criminal justice system is a lot more nuanced and complex than a lot of people, I think, appreciate. What's being done to address these issues? I created with Kenyan stakeholders back in 2015 what was called a rapid reference guide to wildlife crime. And it was aimed at helping investigators and prosecutors reach the right decision in less time. Because let's not forget, sometimes prosecutors will be going to court with a huge number of trials and first appearances listed, and they wouldn't have time to go and look these things up. Tanzania in 2017 created a similar guide. They followed the same model, and that model also contained standard operating procedures for early and continued engagement between prosecutors and investigators. The difference between Kenya and Tanzania is that Tanzania made that engagement mandatory. And we are seeing in Tanzania, since the Shitani case, an improvement, therefore, in these prosecution-led investigations and the quality of them which perhaps most recently was evidenced by the conviction of who she's known as the Queen of Ivory, and she was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. And in that case, evidence was secured of financial investigations, telephone, communications, and more. So it's a much stronger case. That's not to say it won't necessarily be overturned at an appeal. The appeal is pending, but lessons will be learned. And at the end of the day, it does show a big step forward in the quality of these investigations for a prosecution service that, as I say, is still quite young. Do you think there is room for more regional collaboration from law enforcement that would then help secure successful convictions for wildlife crimes? I think there is already quite a lot of information sharing going on. I don't see the problem as lying in regional cooperation beyond perhaps actioning and speeding up the exchange of evidence for the purposes of criminal trials, something called mutual legal assistance. And extradition. I see the problems as, as, as being more institutional. As I said, we're dealing with very young prosecution services all over Africa. In Kenya, the DPP's office is only nine years old. In Botswana, it was born a little bit earlier than that, but it still hasn't taken over all prosecutions in its, in its country. So these, these prosecution services are young, they're, they're developing the capacity within, they've got young, many inexperienced prosecutors, they're often dealing with a backlog of cases that perhaps wouldn't have been charged today, but were charged back then. And so I, I see the solution lying more in a holistic approach to criminal justice capacity building, as opposed to the more siloed approach that so many different sectors take when it comes to particular crimes. You know, we're, we're focusing on wildlife crime. We'll have another organization focused on human trafficking, another one focused on um, gender-based violence. They're all entering the same bottleneck of the court system. Um, and so until that bottleneck is sort of un unlocked and cases can progress more quickly and efficiently and are charged in accordance with a sort of codified, uniform approach, th these problems will keep happening. That was Shamini Janayathan, a senior prosecution advisor for the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. 
and before Chamonix, it was Alistair Nelson, a senior fellow at the GI. Researching illicit market comes with a unique set of challenges. Field researchers must be creative when developing new methods to understand what is not meant to see the light of day. In the GI's most recent meth report, Jason Eli opted to involve people who use drugs, a method that will hopefully contribute to a more well-rounded understanding of drug markets. Two significant ivory trafficking cases were overturned in 2020, a moment that was met with major disappointment from conservationists. But rather than being a one-off situation, the failed prosecution of these cases highlights a larger problem with processing criminal cases on the continent. That concludes this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thank you to our guests, Jason Eli, Alistair Nelson, and Shamini Janayathan. For more on this episode, visit globalinitiative.net and take a look at the Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in Eastern and Southern Africa, Risk Bulletin Number 16, and the report, A Synthetic Age, the evolution of methamphetamine markets in Eastern and Southern Africa. You can also listen to previous episodes as well as other podcasts from the Global Initiative. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai Williams. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. <laughs>